0: This is UCD Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. And each week, we'll be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders, to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and the world. Our experts each week will offer insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist and lecturer at New City College of Business. Now, in some ways, the last year has been very different, but in other ways, some ways it's been very similar to the previous year. We did uh, this exercise with some guests previously and looked back at the financial and business year and the economic aspects as well. And we're going to do it again today. And we think there is a lot going on across a range of sectors, range of industries, and there's a lot of personalities breaking through, some new people some old people and some people have left us entirely and we'll be discussing those as well. My guests on today's podcast are Donald O'Donovan, who's the business editor of the Irish Independent. And I'm also joined by Laura Slattery from the Irish Times Business Desk. Laura writes the media and marketing column, among other things, at the Irish Times Business section. So you're both very welcome, first of all, to uh, what I think is going to be a busy review of the year. We're going to have to get through a lot of topics in just under 30 minutes. I know and I can trust both of you to get there. So welcome, Laura. Welcome, Donald. Hi, Emmett. Hi, Emmett. First of all, I suppose, let's get the the big subject out of the way. We were here at this time last year. We were talking about vaccines. We were talking about variants. We were talking about restrictions. Unfortunately, in various forms, we're talking about some of those topics uh, again. We have made some progress, but it hasn't been maybe as dramatic as some of us would have hoped and include myself in that because I was a a big believer that the vaccines would transform the picture, but it hasn't been quite as transformative, arguably, as we would have thought. Uh, Donald. Any kind of initial reactions uh, on COVID? It's, it's uh, something to stay the same, et cetera. Well, what's your own view of where we are and how the, the whole business and the economic world is reacting to this virus?
1: I think by and large, the temptation is to focus on where it's still causing the most damage. But probably the most interesting thing really is, is how little damage it causes to a lot of the economy. So... An awful lot of people are, you know, working. So, I mean, the initial hit in terms of unemployment was massive. The numbers on any kind of emergency supports now are very, very low compared to what they were. You know, they're, they're a tenth of what they were, maybe, or certainly their percentages of, of, of what they were the first half of last year. Uh, So a lot of the economy has really come back. It's come back maybe a little bit differently. And and there are a lot of social restrictions. So they come and they go. I mean, that's what's what's really interesting is it is quite a volatile situation in terms of the public health message. You know, we've gone from the good news about vaccines to the bad news about Delta to the bad news about Omicron to the good news about boosters. And that's all sort of just plays out. By and large, the economy has ridden it out. There's a lot of government borrowing that is masking the real issues there. But at the same time, you know, the parts of the economy that are really feeling it are, you know, where people have to be face to face. So hospitality is going to have a horrendous Christmas. Arts and entertainment, an absolutely horrendous Christmas. And, and it's worth bearing in mind that, you know, December is probably the most important uh, month for both of those and for the people who work in them.
0: Now, Laura, where are you on, on COVID? How, how's it been for the last, for yourself personally, the last 12 months? And how are you feeling about the whole thing as we enter into, into the new year?
2: Well it still feels a little surreal to me um I mean I personally I suppose I feel lucky that I haven't been affected in terms in terms of health or, or the, those of my my loved ones but you know I've been working from home for the best part of 2 years we're on the cusp of of year 3 now there is a sense of of isolation uh, you know a sense of fragility and vulnerability just generally across the population and you know I, I would share that I think but 2021, it was sort of like the, the sequel to 2020 that, that nobody wanted, you know, was sort of a rehash of a lot of the same themes that we had last year, the same miserable themes. And, you know, just as, as a financial journalist, you know, what we see now is a lot of companies sort of talking about uh, what happened in 2019, you know, when, when they're reporting their 2021 performance. They're not looking back at last year because last year was either a disaster for them Or it was some, you know, really unusual, exceptional spike in performance, depending on what industry they're in. Um, So, you know, all the sort of usual year on year, annual comparisons are are, are out the window. At the same time, like last year, we would have had a sense that many businesses were sort of waiting it out. They thought the pandemic would be over in a few months. And and sort of the major long term structural strategic decisions, if you want to call them that, they were kind of on pause. But we're now on the cusp of year three of, of this thing. You know any self-respecting company really can't afford to do that. And that's really I think what we're seeing now. Um, you know, the stronger companies, it's not just about pivoting straight away to cope with the m- pandemic. It's about, you know, finding a way of doing business as, as usual in an in a very unusual world. um As Nola said, you know, hospitality and live entertainment, they're really suffering now at the moment. But you know, it's it's really notable how it's gone, you know, from we're all in this together to the idea that some sectors are, are taking one for the team and I think that's it's good to acknowledge that and it's good to sort of say that you know the pain is actually not being spread equally and to sort of tailor the government response in, in according to that reality.
0: That's true and, and hopefully there'll be more of that tailoring that goes on and, and Donald, one other feature that's really coming out strongly to me is, is the supply chain disruptions obviously a lot of us were locked down last year a lot of us were in lockdown particularly in the first few months of this year Suddenly, you know, lots of Western populations are out there again. There's a huge demand for goods and services. Suddenly inflation in Ireland is at a 14 year high. We're over 5% on a year to year basis. Extraordinary figures, really. We haven't seen this kind of thing really since the Celtic Tiger. Now, are you somebody that says, look, this is just a COVID thing that will kind of unwind at, at, in time? Or do you think we're, we're actually into more of a, a paradigm shift here in the way goods are priced? Uh,
1: where, where do you sit on that debate? I think it is a dynamic situation in that inflation, which I think is generally driven by the sort of disruptions caused by COVID and, and a couple of other things, I, that can become self-fulfilling. So even if it is temporary, it can become permanent in a way. But I, I'm very conscious, I think, having looked at these things in the past, that there was a kind of minor inflationary spike in 2011. There was a little bit in 2009, but there was, a, you know, significant in 2011 as the world economy came out of of the the global financial crisis. Now, the Irish economy didn't come out of the global financial crisis and maybe missed some of this, but but suffered for it because as supply chains had to come back from being really kind of moribund, there is, and certainly was in 2011, is in 2021, a sort of a lack of supply and uh, undercapacity. uh, Partly that's to do with the nature of globalisation in that there's a very different process to shutting a factory in France or the US or Ireland that makes things versus shutting the factory that makes its inputs in China or in Vietnam and and like frankly it can be much more brutal process to shut that factory in China so you know when demand goes down in the west the supply chain shut down in other parts of the world and it may be that in Europe, certainly companies going to a kind of a slow wind down, whereas the, the gates get locked in other parts of the world. And then to reverse that process is very tricky. And to do that on a global scale, where every, literally every industry in the world has been affected at the same time by COVID-19, that doesn't. It, we don't have a system for doing that in the global economy. And so we're suffering for that at the moment. One thing that's really striking is if you look at inflation this year, how much of it is really about energy prices? But if you looked at energy prices in May and June 2020, Oil traders couldn't give away oil. They couldn't give it away for zero. There was nowhere to supply. There was nowhere to to store the overcapacity um, because so many factories had shut down. So many cars were not running and, 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 and so on. So it's a very lumpy global system we have when it stops. When it hums along, it's grand and everyone kind of knows what they're doing reasonably well. If it's reasonably predictable, what, you know, orders are going to be in three months or six months or a year. People, managers can generally cope with that. If nobody knows what the order is going to be in a month or two months or three months, then they can't and they don't. And we're, we're suffering from that at the moment. So I I do look at this year's inflation, the kind of the constituents of this year's inflation, which are quite hard. You know, they're about energy and things. and And I think I would be very sort of, sanguine about the extent to which that is going to drive inflation into the future, unless, you know, oftentimes in business, we find ourselves, as business reporters, we find ourselves talking about wage increases like it's a bad thing. But we love wage increases ourselves. Everyone loves wage increases. Wages in in the US and Western Europe, Ireland, a bit of exception, have been really kind of crappy for the last 30 years. You know, people have had almost no wage increases in real terms. So wage increases in and of themselves shouldn't be regarded as a bad thing either. I don't think we're going to, this this spike at this level is going to continue. I I think if the wages don't come, um, then we could even be into a deflationary re- situation at the end of next year, because I think we'll probably have oversupply of lots of goods that are now being um, put into production in places and won't reach their, their markets for, you know, six to eight months.
0: I suppose the problem is, looking at just Ireland specifically, and we we, we are unashamedly parochial on this, on this podcast, but at a 5% inflation rate, if you had a, a reasonably severe lockdown in the first six months of the year because of Omicron, et cetera, you know, you'll have those pressures will build, you know, the politics of inflation are kind of almost more interesting than inflation. You know, you're going to have everyone back at home ordering online. There's going to be a problem if everyone starts.
1: That's right. And some of the things, I mean, if you go through, look at what, where inflation is, like some of the areas where inflation is fair enough, you know, things like energy and widgets that, there was no demand for it last year. There is demand for this year, but some of it is things like, um, you know, uh, pulp cardboard. Uh, you know, I think probably what has been a, a, a swift and fundamental shift in the in the global economy towards more people getting things delivered from home, and it all comes in cardboard boxes. I don't think that element of the inflationary pressure is going to slip back. Now it may be that that um, you know the paper and forestry industry adapts, but it takes a little while to adapt. But so yeah, some of what's happening when you look into the inflationary statistics. Some of it is more permanent. A lot of it, I think, is basically the whole world economy trying to come to come through a very narrow pass to, 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 you know, squeeze through a very narrow pass to get back to some semblance of normality. As you say, if normality doesn't come, then, yeah, maybe all bets are off.
0: Uh, Laura, I have to splice up these different topics. So I'm going to come to you on banks. OK, um, I, I know it's always been your favorite topic, but <laughs> there was a lot going on in the last year. Ulster Bank departing, KBC departing. The growth of the fintechs, Revolut in particular, really seems to be uh, kind of grabbing a lot of media airtime. What what do you make of the departure of the UK banks or or the European banks, should I say, when you're talking about KBC? I mean, the Irish banks at one level would be probably happy they're going less competition on on the surface. But I suppose it doesn't really point to a very healthy market situation.
2: No, it doesn't. Um, I mean, I think there has been concerns about the level of competition in, in the Irish uh, banking market for some time. And, and yes, as you say, KPC Bank Ireland, which is a subsidiary of the, the Belgian operation, it's going to depart and it's you know selling its, its non-performing loans to a crowd called Carvel, And the performing loans are probably going to be taken over by Bank of Ireland. That deal has been agreed and is subject to um, regulatory approval. Um, then, of course, as Ulster Bank, you know, that's going to split the, the mortgage loans between permanent TSB and, and, and possibly AIB taking the the tracker loans. There, we don't know what's happened to the non performing loans, as far, as far as I'm aware. Um, that, so, this is going to be a long drawn out process, one that's very difficult for employees, I think, in particular, more even more so, so than than customers. And you know, it was kind of you know signaled or flagged or at least rumored for a while that this would happen, and, and it may still take a say another year at least before you know the process is is really properly underway but it's it's not not a great sign you know we had the the, the head of kpc bank ireland they're recently saying he wouldn't recommend another bank um, set up in ireland it's just that the, the, the market wasn't really there for one at the same time you know you talk to um you know in terms of just general day-to-day uh, current account uh, type operations um, a lot of people are, are moving money in, into uh, apps like Revolut. The, the rise of fintech has has been uh, quite extraordinary, really, how fast it is. I, I feel under quite under quite a lot of peer pressure to take out, uh, I shouldn't say take out, but just to just to open or download a, a Revolut app. Um if you're at a dinner uh, table and you're the only one of your friends who hasn't got a Revolut app, uh, let me tell you that you're you're persona non grata, especially if you try and with it. Uh, cash that's that's just um that's just so last century at this point Revolut has uh, about 1.5 million customers in ireland which when you think about it is, is a lot of people and okay that's just that um one particular end of, of financial services um but it shows i suppose the challenge now for for the, the banking market as a whole and, and and really um i think where a lot of people are feeling that the lack of competition will be at the mortgages side of things
0: when we talk about banks, you know, we tend to look back because it's such a seismic banking crisis here in Ireland, even by international standards. And we, we're we under already a little bit of time pressure, but I don't think we could pass on uh, Donald without marking the death of Sean Fitzpatrick, the former chief executive and chairman of Anglo Irish Bank. Um, it's always a difficult question because what it means to the family and friends of Mr. Fitzpatrick is different to what us as kind of wider commentators make of what happened and his death. But do you want to give us a few words just to, to sort of um, give your own personal view of how we should view what happened to him, his career, the end he came to, you know, the kind of scandal ridden era that was Irish banking and that he was definitely part of?
1: Oh, yeah, look, it's, it's it's very sad for the family, no doubt. Uh, but, you know, he's a very public figure. I suppose it was a personification in many ways of... Of the excesses of of banking um, in Ireland in in the 2000s, partly because he had a pro, you know, he kept a, a fairly high public profile. You know, he he was on TV and radio, radio in particular, I suppose, and he was in a a, u- a unique position. He he drove really the uh, the growth of of uh, Anglo Irish Bank from being a a niche uh, to a very mainstream bank, or quite a mainstream bank, a very big bank, the third big, biggest bank in the country at its peak, and I suppose, I mean. If Anglo Irish Bank had been a bank that didn't take in deposits from ordinary customers, that lent more sort of loosely than you know its its more mainstream rivals of AOB and Bank of Ireland. And if it had remained reasonably niche and reasonably small and collapsed, I think that would have been one story. And and you know, and and the personalities involved would have would have probably never really, you know, made made that much of an impact in terms of, of public perceptions. But I think What's interesting about the growth of Anglo Irish Bank is it is that it caused a reaction in the other banks, and and it, it's interesting when you when when Laura talks about you know coming under pressure to have a revolute account. The reality is that no institution exists on its own. So AIB in particular, Ulster Bank to a huge extent, um, and Bank of Ireland maybe less so, but eventually all to some extent followed the, the Anglo Irish Bank model, and they did that because Anglo Irish Bank was seen as very successful the stock market was rewarding Anglo Irish bank for the risks it was taking and the regulators were certainly not stepping in to say to, to question whether those risks were safe and i th- i think an interesting thing in banking is that risks that are safe for an institution at a, a certain scale are not safe in uh, systematically at another scale and 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 Anglo Irish bank under um uh, Sean Fitzpatrick, particularly under David John, when Sean Fitzpatrick was the chairman and maybe should have been in a position, certainly was in a position where he, he he was less exposed to the front line and should have been taking a more overarching view. It grew and grew and grew until it became a monster that really changed all of the nature of Irish banking. And then the banks collapsed and and the banks collapsed because of reckless lending ultimately.
0: And it seems like property is the thing that you know, we, we perish on in Irish business, you know, it seems to be the, the asset that brings us down or, or, or makes um, the, the, the kind of a poster poster poi, or in this case, a, of a person in Irish business. Well,
1: property was the thing at the time, I think. Um, it, there's, there's no reason it won't be something else in future. And that will be the thing I'd look out for. I mean, it's it's very unlikely to be property the, the next time that sinks, um, you know, a systemic, the important sector in Ireland, like the banks. Um, but it's the behaviour of sort of loose regulation, of of enviously watching a competitor grow and then feeling the needs to compete and outcompete that competitor, even if that competitor is not doing the right thing, the, those sort of dynamics can affect any sector at any time. So yeah, look, um, in terms of, of Sean Fitzpatrick, uh, his legacy, is, you know, it's a really bad legacy in terms of his legacy for banking and for the public, uh, the state of the public finances, because ultimately um, the, the banks had to be bailed out. The lesson I think should be less about property is dangerous and more about um, you know, the dynamics of dysfunctional competition within industries, the failure of shareholders uh, to, to watch long term value, and the failure of regulators to intervene, those are the lessons I think that need to be learned. It's not I, I don't think it's specific to banks, and I don't think it's specific to property.
0: No, and, and history never repeats itself in exactly the same way. Not
1: quite the same way, yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: Laura, Donan's mentioning property there, and, and, and hopefully, as he said, we, we've learned our lesson that that doesn't repeat exactly as it did the first time. But at the start of the pandemic, we were all told and we all sort of accepted that House prices would go down. People would be in under lockdown. Nobody would be thinking of buying a house. People would kind of take a rain check from the market. But actually, the opposite has occurred. We've had surging prices, both in Dublin and nationally. I mean, were you surprised by that? And, and uh, you know, do you think, you know, what are we looking at another year again next year? Is there any sign of any kind of modified growth pattern at all or, or do you think this is just kind of only going to go one way?
2: God I'm not sure if I was um, surprised or or not but I mean I suppose it, it felt reasonable as you say in the first lockdown um, that people would have a sense of insecurity about their own financial situation so if they had been on the cusp of buying a property that they might as you say think twice but yeah and instead what's happened is quite a lot of people have built up excess savings over the course of the pandemic and they actually have deposits you know that that elusive uh, incredibly difficult to get um lump sum and they're ready um to go back you know to the markets there was also pent up demand of course from from the transactions that hadn't taken place and probably most critically of all the supply especially in key areas is is very limited um, there was also, I suppose, uh, 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 in some some instances, a phenomenon of, of people relocating outside Dublin and choosing to um, have a new life somewhere, perhaps somewhere they grew up. And that put pressure on on some cities um, outside Dublin in particular in terms of prices. I think the CSO figures say um, the prices nationally are up more than 12% in the year to the end of September. So I don't know what they're going to end up like for 2021 as a whole um i suspect it's probably going to um see more upward uh, momentum next year i mean I, that's just my complete guess just based on the supply being being where it is it's a kind it's, it's it's a different crisis to what we saw last time but it, it's no doubt very miserable for uh, vast numbers of people because it's sort of uh, you know it's it's a two-tier market there's people who can um either afford the deposit or, or borrow one from their parents. We think it's something like 40% of first-time borrowers are doing that within the industry. And, you know, the sum, the average deposit needed is, is 52,500, the BPFI just said. Um, so there's people in that category. And then there's people for for whom, you know, that's just completely out of reach and, and the borrowing limits. And we all know about why they're there, um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a solid regulation, um, uh, protection, you know, it's a, it, you could say that is a lesson learned, but it does leave a lack of flexibility and it does leave, um, a sort of a, a, basically a generation, um, locked out of the housing market and they may never actually get on it and uh, get on the ladder if we can even call it a ladder. So it's, it's a difficult, it's a, it's a difficult situation. And I think a lot of people have the, the right, especially when you know, wage inflation has been non-existent in, in many industries over the past decade, and um, they have a right to feel a little aggrieved um, with 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 rents going up at the same time. It, this is not a particularly pleasant um, situation, and um, I wouldn't you know be surprised if it's the number one issue at the next election.
0: If I had a prize to give either of you, I'd give it to you for the next uh, answer that you're going to give. But but Donald I'll start with you and put you on the spot. What is your definition of what the metaverse
1: is? And this is obviously Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg's articulation of the next phase of the blending of the physical world and the digital world. I think into a single economy, and so like that's something that that Facebook has kind of marketed uh, reasonably heavily this year, and they've rebranded as a company called Meta. I think what's really interesting there to me is, I mean, I mean, one kind of data point, if you like, that struck me during the years. You know, one thing we reported on. Was recently enough, there was a survey by Graduate Ireland of the companies that graduates want to work for. Um, it, it, it's it's a regular enough thing, and it's a good thing for you know in in a, in, a, in an economy with skills shortages and with lots of demand for workers and outstanding COVID. It's a it's a good thing to be in the top of those lists, right? And Google has has kind of remained up there very high, but Facebook this year dropped out of the top twenty. Um, so that, that Facebook is not a company that young Irish people want to work for. That is, I thought that was a really interesting thing. And that happened around the same time as uh, that that rebrand as Meta. And you can kind of see why. I mean, Facebook, I think if you're 19 or 20, Facebook is somewhere your grandparents swap family photos and maybe conspiracy theories about COVID and things like that. Uh, It's not a sort of hip, aspirational, young company. It is not a, a, a sort of exciting new business. And its associations are quite negative, you know. Not that many companies are front and center in the description of a coup or a potential coup of the United States, for instance, in the way that Facebook has been associated with that. Facebook's Instagram is, is obviously very problematic in terms of young people and how they perceive themselves and things like that. So it's a company with real problems. And I, my 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 instinct is that the description of itself as meta and its kind of focus on you know what it's going to be in five years time is really because it's having a real problem right now with what it is.
0: Laura, I remember there was a, a, a essentially an online computer game about 10 15 years ago you might remember Second Life you were given digital currency you walked around this virtual world I think you you certainly had a name or sort of an avatar type identity that's apparently something what we're going to be getting in this metaverse so I don't I don't know you know obviously with my very limited appreciation of what this is it doesn't seem entirely new but obviously it is what what do you make of it
2: no, I think Second Life was maybe like the sort of the toy telephone you, you give your toddler compared to um, <laughs> what, what Meta hopes to deliver with with its sort of role in the metaverse. You know, Mark Zuckerberg kind of wants Meta, the company that is to be the kind of landlord of this new virtual, you know, reality infrastructure. But, it, you know, it hasn't necessarily been built yet. Obviously, there, there's a lot of companies operating in this space, but but essentially means as as well as, you know, um, completely uh, new generation sort of gaming that we know, you know, our work lives could be <laughs> seriously affected by employers, you know, moving to sort of have people ver- work virtually in a, in a metaverse, but the term itself isn't new. It goes back to a sci-fi novel in 1992 that also actually coined the, the word uh, avatar. I, I thought the meta rebrand was, was handled quite poorly it's not just because it had this terrible droopy logo and because Mark Zuckerberg was out in a very cringe making video trying to explain what it was. But I think people could see through the fact that it happened basically in the same week as the Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen was sort of doing a series of public hearings and interviews about you know the harm that Facebook has caused through its apps, in particular, Instagram, and as Donald said, its effect on, on, on younger people, younger girls, and their self-image. And the really, you know, the point was it has knowledge of what its apps are doing to people, but it has effectively prioritised its profits. And I expect, if, you know, if I could predict one thing, it's that Facebook will continue to prioritise its, its profits, um, you know, whether the metaverse takes off or not. I think it it likes its revenues to be very, very real. And that's what we're going to see, I think, from Facebook and and Mark Zuckerberg in the future.
0: Looking at Stripe, Laura, on the other side, where there's no conflict, there's just up, up, up all the time, um, was declared the most valuable startup in, well, I don't know whether it's US history or global history, but certainly the, the, the figures came out in the US. $95 billion valuation for the Collison Brothers company. I mean every year this this sort of phenomenal stripe just seems to grow and grow and grow. There just seems to be no limit or cap on the growth of that company uh, and it's extraordinary for the two individuals involved.
2: yeah, I mean it's almost hard, I think for um people to get their heads around that number and uh, ninety five billion I remember that story broke on on a sunday i think and and you know, it was quite late and uh, my colleague who was working on it, you know, had the conversation, as you know, with the, the people who were in charge of editing the front page of the Irish Times that day. And it was really just about stressing that, that this doesn't happen every day. You know, this has to be a front page story. Ninety five billion is just a huge number. And it had followed a, a 600 million uh, fundraising that they'd just done. Personally, it's also been a great year for John and Patrick Colson. You know, that according to Bloomberg, they're worth about. 11.4 billion each. And it's quite, uh, quite uh, you know, striking in particular because, you know, Stripe is still a privately held company. It hasn't gone public yet. It's possible that might happen next year. And, you know, there's certainly rumours to that effect. But it, it's just been an, 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 an incredible year. I think the only bad thing that's happened for John and Patrick Collison this year was there was a slightly dodgy article in Forbes. It rehashed some cliches, shall we say, about Limerick. And
0: Forbes would Jewish, I should say. Yes, and uh, Donal, Donal is our resident uh, limerick, uh, limerick expert here. Uh, Donald, you were absolutely, you were fuming, weren't you, when this article broke?
1: I, was I fuming? Yeah, I, I, I was probably annoyed about it, <laughs> all right. I, it was just, uh, to be honest, because it was trite. It was nonsense. Um, uh, it, was a, it, w- it was a sort of a pointless article. Somebody had written a piece for Forbes that talked about Limerick in sort of uh, almost Mad Max terms. And I, I don't know if either of you know Limerick. Limerick's a lovely city, very beautiful. Uh, it has a very low crime rate. Uh, it's very prosperous, uh, so it just—it was just a very strange thing. I, I suppose what you know, if, if you were to sort of to, to wonder why the guy did it, because it because it was clearly not based in Um Maybe he was trying to sort of set up a sort of a rise to riches um, kind of a scenario, but but it was nonsense. So um, I, in terms of Stripe, this may be a little bit unfair on Stripe, but I am very unconvinced by the valuations that I see on on uh, private companies in particular, venture capital backed companies. And I have to say, as an editor, I take a kind of a dimish view of of writing up valuations as if they are kind of measures of success. A valuation based on you know a a, a, a seeding round that is really represents a tiny, tiny fraction of the of the valuation. As Laura says, like it is a fascinating story. The Stripe story is a fascinating story, and to have the you know the most valuable private company in the world owned by two Irish guys. Is that's that, that 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 like a fascinating. Um, uh, situation. But but in general, I think there's a lot of very loose money floating around in the venture capital industry where they're riding a wave of quantitative easing in the US in particular, to a lesser extent here, and also kind of recycling of of valuations that become self-fulfilling. And I, I do look at valuation rounds or seed rounds that, you know, they're for relatively small money that value companies at very, very big valuations. And I, the thing that i think of is how maybe some of us and some and some um, institutions reported the sales of land in Bowles bridge in 2005 say as you know the top price was the exciting thing and not maybe how viable that was long term
0: yeah what's interesting to me is 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 slightly agree with that but slightly taking a different direction is that um the sheer wealth that's been accumulated even if it's slightly you know inflated or you know the valuations are, are slightly frothy to put it mildly but even if they are the Collison brothers are incredibly wealthy Irish people now, right? No matter what happens from here on in, they're essentially overnight replacing pretty much everyone we've written about before, whether it's Dermot Desmond, Dennis O'Brien, J.P. McManus, whatever, right? They, they've they've kind of uh, somersaulted over all of those people uh, kind of over a few months, really. Uh, and it's it's extraordinary changing of the guard, I suppose, for business journalists that sort of the, the, the last generation that were so dominant for various reasons, Michael Smurfit, et cetera, et cetera, there's a whole new cast of characters and these two Collison brothers are going to be right at the forefront. They're starting to, I suppose, circulate some of their money into the Irish economy. They've done some stuff with University of Limerick. They've they're obviously got an Irish base, which is growing at, at a fast clip as well. So I suppose there's a there's a whole era changing thing
1: going on, isn't there, in, in this striped situation? That's right. And wealthy people become powerful people. And that, that's something to bear in mind. I think that's something that the reporting of tech in Silicon Valley, I think, got quite badly wrong in the first really 10 years after after the founding of, of of Facebook, where they sort of tended to just regard those companies as kind of exciting upstarts, even when they were kind of global behemoths. And and that's something we'll have to do, I think, as as journalists, we'll have to go, well, okay, where does power lie? Where does economic power lie in Ireland? Where does economic power lie in the Irish economy? And if it's new companies and new people, then you know there's no reason why that they you know wouldn't be looked at just as hard and 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 with the same sort of level of interest and intensity and skepticism that you would look at more established power players in terms of of the Irish economy
0: finally, we're running out of time, Laura, so I'm going to give the last one to you um what is a fulfillment center? I used to think they were called warehouses, but apparently they are called fulfillment centers, Amazon embedding itself a little bit more in the Irish economy. You don't just go online and go to the u k version. We're going to have a lot more Irish infrastructure in place. Is is that a big deal? Do you think, or, or is it just sort of everyone will have every city in Europe will have an Amazon center, and Dublin is no different because it, it certainly got a lot of media coverage at the time when it was announced.
2: Yeah, I think it reflects two things. It reflects uh, Brexit first of all. Um, you know, Irish customers are paying these uh, customs and and and. Uh, Duties on, on some products are, you know, vast. It, it depends obviously on, on the, the, the value of the product and where it's come from. But it obviously has made, you know, buying through Amazon a little bit more expensive, shall we say, for the Irish customer because we typically bought through Amazon UK. So that's one of the reasons, you know, it, it, when the, the Fulfillment Centre opens in Baldonnell uh, next spring with about 500 jobs, I understand um, that will be able to sort of circumvent a lot of that. Um, Amazon already has a logistics uh, centre here and there's going to be a second one that's just more sort of at the delivery end of things. So, you know, that that's one part of the story, the Brexit story. The other story is just about the, the sheer size of Amazon and the fact that they've had an incredible pandemic, really just an excellent um, time during the COVID crisis when, when physical retail shops were closed in, in Ireland, much of Europe. And, you know, they they cleaned up on the um, online shopping side of things. They're, they're sort of, um, you know, their their efficiency um, uh, sort of come into its own. Uh, a lot of people uh, see, um, hate Amazon, maybe not so much, you know, because of anything specific that they've done, but maybe just because of the sheer size of, of the company and the fact that it's hoovered up uh, the business from so many independent and smaller retailers. But also there has been stories about um, the way they've treated employees. You know, they're not going to stop. I don't think uh, there was moves to unionize uh, the workforce in the US there where unions are, of course, uh, uh, very uh, frowned upon and find it hard to gain traction. And, you know, I think we're going to see continued pushes uh, for for unionization and, and better conditions and pay for Uh, employees of amazon because this is a vast vast company with with huge profits and its founder you know is 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 so you know he's so successful at this stage he can afford to take a step back from the company and um spend more time with the spaceships it's uh,
0: it's a bit it's different than gardening isn't it yeah
2: it's an incredible 21st century um story but um maybe one that makes a few people feel queasy (laughs) but we're kind of glued to it at the same time um, so yeah, Amazon fulfillment center. I mean, it, it will create it will create some jobs, but we, we don't know it, it, the other side of that ledger. We don't know how many jobs it's effectively going to see lost elsewhere in retail.
1: I think that's that's a really interesting aspect of the digital economy. Is that, you know the extent to which it, it, it obviously it creates wealth and it concentrates wealth into the companies that really get it right. But in terms of the actual economy, a lot of the time you're moving, as Laura says, jobs from one side of the ledger, maybe on you know a street or a, or a shopping center. To a fulfillment center, it, it's not having a sort of the digital economy is not having the kind of effect that the railways had or you know industrialization had in terms of growing the overall world's GDP. The, the, the GDP of of the online world is definitely growing very rapidly and it's becoming very concentrated. It's not quite clear that that has had the sort of dynamic impact that you wouldn't maybe have expected it to have in terms of global growth.
0: Okay, well, Donald, thanks for that. And unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, Laura's off to do some shopping in our fulfillment center. <laughs> Donald's off to take a job with the Limerick Chamber of Commerce. Thanks for a sterling defense of that uh, city uh, when we were talking about Stripe. Interesting year, as you say, a little bit of a kind of a work in progress year. We're hoping COVID, uh, we've obviously got the antiviral uh, drugs coming in next year. Hopefully, you know, souped up vaccines as well. So we'll be in a better place on that. Um, we've marked some passings in this conversation. Um, some of the, I would just say, the economic crash is still sending out echoes across the generations as well, but it's been a very interesting conversation. Next year, whatever happens will be fascinating to watch. There's a lot of dynamic forces moving. And of course, the overall global picture is very threatening in some ways geopolitically, but hopefully that'll get contained as well. O'Donnell and Laura will be documented in their respective organisations. And thank you very much for coming on the Business Impact Podcast today. And best of luck for the year ahead.